this is Miss Sony Lanza, and you are listening to The Movement Bottega. I'm extremely humbled to have today's guest on the podcast, Dan Levington. Dan Levington is an award-winning neuroscientist, musician, record producer, and best-selling author. He's the author of four New York Times best-selling books, which includes This Is Your Brain on Music, The World in Six Songs, The Organized Mind, and Successful Aging, as well as the international bestseller, A Field Guide to Lies. Today, Dan Levington talks about his new book, Successful Aging, along with his personal discoveries while doing research on the book, and we talk a little bit about music. Enjoy. So, Dan, it's so good to have you. How are you doing? I'm all the better for seeing you, Miss Oni. Oh, man. No, you don't have to say that. <laughs> so what have you been up to since all this quarantine been going on? Well, uh, my wife and I are both loving it. We've got so much time to do things that we didn't do before. Um, as I mentioned to um, my good friend, my dear friend, Brian Nova. Right. You know. I, I do. <laughs> I do know very well. <laughs> uh, I started, uh, took up the ukulele. Oh, nice. And I've also been uh, becoming reacquainted with the piano, which was my first instrument. Yeah. And I've always had a piano, but I had sort of let my skills go. And so I'm working back over some of the old tunes I used to play and trying to get it back. I'm working on uh, Chopin Prelude in E minor and Beethoven Sonata Pathétique. The oh, my goodness. And it's coming back. It's slow at my age, but it's coming back. And then um, the lockdown, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm stuck in Zoom meetings like the rest of the world. Right. For administrative university things and planning what my next book will be, all of that. Well, speaking of books, you just... Oh, and yes, yes, the high point of the lockdown yes. is I got to sing two songs with your boyfriend, <laughs> I, Brian you know, Nova. Okay, One so of the for, great jazz guitarists on the planet. He is. Yes. Yeah, so for, for people who do not know, and I'm sure you all know, because I always share Brian's stuff, but um, uh, my, my fiance is a jazz guitarist. And Dan, like we were just talking about the other day, how you remind us, your voice reminds us of Chet Baker. Well, you know, yeah. this, was, this was the great thing about the collaboration with Brian. I love Chet Baker, but it never occurred to me yeah to sing one of his songs or any of them I, I i always just put him so high on a pedestal and brian said to me uh, a couple of years ago you know i i got a song for you and uh <laughs> he was right that i get a completely different reaction to that song than to other songs that i sing much much more positive reaction and you know it's a whole other dimension of musicianship right which is having the knowledge of repertoire and the ears to be able to do what Brian did and say, you should be singing that song. That's what, you know, that's what the great record company presidents do. He has, he has an uncanny ability to kind of hear how to bring out the best in people. <laughs> he sure but, brings out the best in me. Yeah. <laughs> Things I didn't know were there. Man, I don't think that's that. That, that that's that hard to do though but um so you just speaking of your next book you have a book out that you just released called um 
successful aging. And for those of who are not familiar with what the book's about, do you mind giving a brief synopsis of what that, how that book came to be? I'd be happy to. Um, the, the book Successful Aging uh, is my take on what neuroscience has learned about the aging process. And of course, you begin aging the day you're born. So right. it looks at the lifespan from birth to death and the various changes the brain undergoes and the, um, the things we can do to tilt the balance in our favor so that we'll have happier, um, healthier, and more uh, rewarding lives. And the impetus for it was that my parents turned 80 mm. seven years ago. <laughs> and they said, okay, smarty pants, son of ours, neuroscientist, what should we be doing different? And so I looked for a book to get them so I could just be done with it. And right. there wasn't one. And so as with my other four books, I ended up just writing the book that I wanted to read. There you go. Oh my gosh. And are they, are they happy with, with um, the book? Do they feel like they got the answers they were looking for? I think they are. Of course, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, as I learned stuff, I told them as, as it went along. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're doing great. Well, there's, so in the beginning of your book, you're talking about how, um, which really, I never even would have thought of this because um, on my side of the world with anti-aging is all about fascia and tissue and movement. And that's kind of how we're, and we'll tap into the nervous system on some of those things. But you were bringing up how you can project um, the likelihood of someone's aging journey based on their personality traits from a young age and predict what if they don't become conscious of what is likely to happen, they, you know, they can have an unfortunate <laughs> um, situation gone. Do you mind talking more about that? Well, it's interesting and it's counterintuitive. Uh, you, you might not think that uh, personality at a young age has much to do with how you're gonna live the rest of your life, especially when you're over 40. Right. Over 60, over 80. But um, in thousands of studies now, you know, I'll step back by saying all of us human beings differ from one another in thousands of different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, you probably know people who are stingy and people who are generous and people who are crabby and people who are easy to get along with. And I'm sure we all do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they're not that way all the time, but you, you know, you could, you could think of somebody who's most, most of the time they're that. Mm -hmm. you know? um, and of all the different ways we differ from each other, the how healthy and how happy at every single stage of life. And conscientiousness is a cluster of traits that have to do with doing what you say you'll do, following rules to a certain extent. Right. Uh, Stick-to-itiveness. Um, attention to detail, um, a little bit of, um, I, I guess, tenacity and um, finishing what you start. And if you unpack it, the conscientious child 
is less likely to cross against the light and so less likely to get hit by a bus. Right. Or run over by a truck. And, you know, the conscientious 20-year-old uh, is going to follow at least some minimal rules and not end up in prison. Right. You know, uh, conscientious adults, uh, I mean, let's, let's speed up to older adults, say over 60, um, you know, where, where you'll be in about 30 years. So <laughs> uh, 35 years, perhaps. Around there. <laughs> uh, after 60, conscientious adults have a doctor. Yeah. They see the doctor when they're sick. When the doctor tells them what to do, they actually do it. My doctor friends tell me you would be surprised, astonished, how many patients don't do what the doctor says. They forget to take the pill. They don't take it when they were supposed to. They take it with food when it's supposed to be without. I mean, just these are not conscientious people. Right. And so conscientiousness predicts all of these things. Conscientious and, people don't run out of money. I mean, they, they don't live beyond their means. They, you know, they may not be wealthy, but they, they adjust their expectations to live within what they've got. Right. And like, additionally to when you were talking about personality, so you were talking about the develop, developmental triad of um, genes, culture, and opportunity. Um, so for like, I, I'm curious, like how did you come across those things to like put this together as a formula of how to evaluate people's aging? And then um, also, like what surprised you the most out of doing this research with the, um, into the developmental triad of something that you were not expecting or something even that seems so simple? Because it seems like a lot of this like, oh, of course, but at the same time, you just never would have thought of it, at least in my, on my end <laughs> of the table here. <laughs> now, on mine too, to be yeah. honest, nobody's asked me about this before in a uh, hundred or so interviews I've done about the book. Nobody's asked this question. So um, I'm happy to have the opportunity um, and the genes and the culture. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, um, the fact is in, in writing the book, I, I, I knew a lot of the literature and I knew what I wanted to say. And then I read 4,000 papers uh, to learn more and extract from them different things that I could say. And it was after I more or less had the book in place, after the first 10 or so drafts, mm -hmm. that I was talking to my wife, Heather, who's, who you know, and who's a neuroscientist, yep. over dinner one night. And she said, oh, you know, it sounds to me like what you're talking about is the developmental triad. And I said, what's that? <laughs> and she said, well, it's genes, culture, and opportunity. She said, those are the three factors that influence the, a person's personality and the course of their lives. And I guess I, as a neuroscientist myself, I kind of knew that, but I didn't know it was a thing. Yeah. Uh, and um, so that changed the way I framed the book. Right. After the book was written, I went back over and rewrote it really another 40 times. The draft you're hearing on your audiobook is draft 50 or 51. Mm -hmm. Completely revised the book as I went, but the, uh, as I thought of better ways to do it, I could have kept going. I mean, I, I could have gone up in 75 drafts, but I 
I had other things I needed to do. Yeah. Uh, but the, um, the idea behind it is that your genes predispose you to certain things. Right. But they're not a prescription. They don't guarantee anything. Right. The culture you're raised in is an overlay uh, of um, influence. So take the trait of uh, politeness. Mm -hmm. What the Japanese consider polite and what somebody from New York City considers polite are two very different things. And so the, the way you present yourself to the world and the way you react and interact with other people Partly determined by your genes. Are you outgoing? Are you respectful? Are you introverted? Are you confrontational? But then right. culture puts its whole overlay on it. Right. A Japanese versus New York culture being uh, one way. And then there's opportunity. That is the random stuff that happens to you. Starting in the womb, you know, you might get certain nutrients that other kids, we even see differences between twins because the yeah. intrauterine environment can differ for twins. Um, other things like, you know, did you have a role model who was important? Did you get uh, beat up as a kid? Uh, did you have some hardship that you overcame? Did you have it easy? Uh, all of these factors play into your personality and how resilient you are, which is another important quality and, and hence how your life unfolds. Right. The, the, the fascinating, you asked me what I was most surprised about. Mm -hmm. Um, up until 10 years ago, we would teach in our cognitive neuroscience classes that genes were about 50% of the determinant of anything. Mm -hmm. Any of the qualities we're talking about. Genes are, contribute 50% to whether you're going to be religious. Oh, wow. Be musical, right? Things right. like that. Um, now we find that genes are in some cases only 7% of a personality trait. Sometimes 20, sometimes 30. It depends on the trait. It depends on the study. It's still being worked out. But what it is telling us is there's a whopping amount that's under your control. You can change yourself. Yeah. You can tilt the balance in, in the favor of the, the kind of person you want to be. And you're never too old to change. You can change your life around like my new hero, Julia Hurricane Hawkins. I don't... Who, who's Julia Hurricane Hawkins, if you don't mind me asking? She's a 104-year-old competitive runner. Oh, my goodness. A retired school teacher from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Oh, my gosh. Baton who decided she'd never been particularly athletic. At age 75, she decided to take up cycling. And then she entered some senior games and was a competitive cyclist. And then at age 100, she decided she was tired of cycling and took up competitive running. And last year, she took home two gold medals in the senior games. Oh, my god. 104. Gosh. Okay, I need to look up this woman. Julia Hurricane Hawkins? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. From Baton Rouge. So that means that, like, for, for people who complain that they can't, you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm just old. There's nothing I can do about it. But, but that, like, your, your book basically highlights that that's quite I the contrary. <laughs> I didn't really start singing until I was 56. Really? I'm 62 now. And it was Brian and Joni Mitchell who encouraged me. Oh, my goodness. 
That's uh, that kind of blows my mind and deterring a little bit from um, the topic at hand, but you've always been in music because you yeah, were uh, your yeah. producer and all that stuff. So I'm surprised you weren't singing before then being around. Well, I, I always tried to sing, but Randy Jackson and Narda Michael Walden and Carlos Santana and all those folks I was working with told me, don't sing, you're not a singer. That's rude. Yeah. <laughs> That's not encouraging. They should, they should learn to like let people explore what they need to do. <laughs> so um, when going back into your, your book here, you had, um, uh, what was some of the things that you feel like shocked you even outside of genes, like things that you've changed in your personal lifestyle based on the research you've gotten from the book? Well, I think the big thing is, uh, I'd say two big things from the research. uh, And a lot of this, I should say, most of what's in the book, we've only learned in the last 10 years. Yeah. Uh, It's this field of neuroscience has exploded and we know a lot more about the aging brain. And again, by aging, I mean anything after you know, one day old. Uh, right. And there are things that we can do starting in our 20s and 30s that can uh, put us on a better path for later. But at my age, um, I, I changed two things in response to the book. One is I've become much more fastidious about sleep. Mm-hmm. I, I follow my own advice. I go to bed at the same time every night and I wake up at the same time every morning and I practice good sleep hygiene. I try not to get overly excited within two hours of bedtime. I don't have coffee after three o'clock in the afternoon, these kinds of things. Because the research is very clear that um, memory is dependent on sleep and the hippocampus, which is the seat of memory, starts to shrink with every decade after age 35. Right. By the time you're my age, one disrupted night of sleep can screw up your memory for two weeks. Oh, wow. So I don't want my memory screwed up. I don't want to forget how to play the Sonata Pathétique, you know? So, right. Um, uh, or, or, you know, how to pronounce hippocampus. So... <laughs> <laughs> Um, The other thing I changed is I recognized that I learned and then recognized in myself that with aging comes a tendency to become complacent, to not want to try new things. This isn't true of everybody, but as a trend, as people get older, you, you, you can broadly characterize childhood as a time of exploration and your teen years, even more exploration. In your 20s, you're trying on a a bunch of different things, maybe a new job, you experiment with different circles of friends, the sort of, I guess, um, simple look at it is that you spend your 30s and your 40s trying to amass, you know, a a little bit of of a nest egg. So that you can eventually maybe buy a house or, you know, contribute to a retirement fund. And by the time you're 60, you've experimented with enough different things that you know what you like and you want to spend the rest of your years not looking for new things, but doing the things that you know you enjoy, which might be spending time with family or going to restaurants that you like. So there's this tendency to not want to try a new restaurant or a new food or to meet a new person. And, you know, by the time you're 80, it's really, 
one can become really entrenched. So with all that as preamble, I decided I have to push myself out of my comfort zone and do things that are uncomfortable to me mm -hmm. or I'm going to calcify. And that's going to not be, it, it, that's the opposite of neuroprotective. It's going to actually cause my brain to decay faster. Right. I have to learn new things and try new things. So the first thing I did was I took flying lessons. Oh my, like a plane flying? For my private pilot's lesson, yeah. Oh my goodness. My, yeah. I started with Livingston Taylor, a friend oh of mine, yeah. who has been a pilot for many, many years and has like 8,500 hours of flight time. And he showed me a few things. And then I took formal lessons uh, and, and got my license. And then the other thing I did was um, I thought, you know, I, I'm going to work on my singing and I'm going to do something I was always too embarrassed to do, which is put out an album of my own songs. And um, Joni and Brian and Rodney Crowell and my friend Christopher Harrison all encouraged me and mentored me. Christopher is a great singer. Um, he was 35 years old at the time, so he came from a different musical tradition than me. Great producer. He had produced the Pet Shop Boys and, yep. and the Pentatonics. And I knew that although I, I produced at least two dozen records, I didn't want to produce myself. I wanted someone else's perspective. And the thought of singing in public and singing songs that I wrote just terrified me, as did flying a plane. But through the terror came some, it sounds corny, but growth. Right. I feel like I'm a better person. Right. And Stronger. Probably, probably good for your brain, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, for those who have not heard Dan's music yet, you, I, I love your songwriting. I remember you, you were over at our house and you played a couple of your songs for us. I played I think, just oh my memory for you, which yeah. is the one that Renee Fleming just uh, recorded. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, that was so much fun. I, I and I got it. to play it on your guitar. You played it on my guitar. Yeah, it was, um, speaking of Hurricane, it's, it was a Hurricane Katrina guitar from, it was a New Orleans yeah. guitar. So, funny full circle. No, that, it was thrilling. And I keep trying to do new things. So I'm, uh, I'm stepping out with my songwriting. I'm recording my second record. Yeah. I'm doing a Kickstarter campaign for it. I'm uh, um, trying to uh, meet new people during the lockdown. It's virtually, but do new research with new students, all these kinds of things. We'll see how well, how long it lasts. I'm sure you're going to be doing this for a while, Dan. You have so much energy. It's amazing. But um, so for what is do you think is like the biggest misconception when people are trying to preserve themselves um, mentally and physically as they age and something that people need to pay attention to the most to have a healthier life? I think the biggest misconception is that old age inevitably brings decline. Mm -hmm. It doesn't. Uh, I, I talked to so many people in putting the book together who are in their 80s and 90s uh, and really and truly at the top of their game. And then others who I didn't talk to but report on, like uh, um, the painter um, 
in uh, New York uh, named Herrera, uh, who's 104 years old and didn't have her first exhibit until she was um, 80. Wow. And my own mother, who became a playwright at age 75 for the first time and had two of her plays staged at, at the theaters in Los Angeles. Um, I interviewed Jane Goodall, age 81, who, you know, you, you talked to, or the Dalai Lama, age 84. Yeah. Uh, you talk to people like that and you realize, no, it, it doesn't inevitably mean that just because you got older, you're going to decline or lose zest or love of life or engagement. And I think the other big misconception that people hold is that um, you can't change. Yeah. You can. A hundred years of psychotherapy, a thousand years of meditation, uh, say otherwise. Yeah. Well, Dan, I know we're wrapping up on time. Is there anything that you want to finish up with or um, conclude? Uh, movement is much more important than exercise, in quotes. Mm -hmm. the, the biggest difference we see in the health of older adults, say over 60, yeah. Isn't whether they've added an extra 15 minutes to their workout. Or it's got to be they... intentional. Yeah. Yeah. And just simply getting up off the couch and moving your whole body and walking around, especially in a natural surrounding. Yeah. Makes the biggest difference to health more so than cardio or aerobic exercise. Yeah. Did that um, surprise you too? Yeah. There with that. I have a friend who wrote a book about it. His name is Scott Grafton. And it's a great book. It's, um, he's a friend of uh, mine, Ann Bryan's. Uh, and um, Scott's book is called Embodied, uh, it, well, it's about embodied cognition, but it's called Physical Intelligence. Okay, I'm gonna look this book up. It's fantastic. Very cool. Scott right now is 63 and he's off for a week by himself in Yosemite. Oh, really? See, probably moving all around. <laughs> oh man, there's do you? Uh, there's a couple other people that we we both know that are in Yosemite right now. I feel like everyone's gone camping to the great outdoors. So, uh, well, is there? Um, what are you working on now, Dan? I'm trying to figure out what my next book is going to be, and I don't know yet. It, it, I, I'm, I try a few different things out and then see what sticks. Yeah. So I'm in that process. And then I'm working on, uh, still working on a ukulele, um, trying to learn a Steely Dan song on the piano. There you go. That's a little bit different than um, Beethoven and things like that. <laughs> It is. I'm trying to learn Chain Lightning, which is really just a modified blues. Uh, yeah. But it's quite syncopated and um, in a different way than, say, Beethoven or Chopin are syncopated. Right. And uh, <laughs> what I'm trying to learn to do uh, is solo over the riff. So the riff is the left hand. I'm, I've got four bars of solo worked out. Yeah. After, and, and later today, when I have my piano hour, I'm going to go try to add another measure. You need to like do an acapella thing with Brian when he got that down. We did do an acapella thing. I'd, I know, I'd love to do you, another one. He hasn't asked. Well, 
I'm sure he will. <laughs> well, Dan, it's thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. And I'm like, it's just, I really appreciate you coming on to this show and I highly respect you. And I'm just beyond like touched and humbled that you would even say yes to this. So thank oh, well, you. I feel the same way about you. Oh. And it's, it's so nice to spend time with you and see your beautiful home and Oh, thank you.